Hey, Harvest friends and family, thank you for tuning in to another episode on the Valor Men's Podcast. My name is Ryan. I'll be continuing through our study in the book of Genesis. And so as we begin our conversation, I want to highlight one of the human tendencies of hearing something and misinterpreting it wrongly. When we receive new communication, our brains sometimes insert words or make assumptions based off of our own experiences and expectations and even our lack of listening for clarity. The classic example of this is when we, as husbands, mishear or misunderstand our wives after they say something to us, maybe particularly about their day or situation that happened, and and we find ourselves uh, not really understanding the whole picture. Perhaps this has been your predicament, being preoccupied with something else. You tried to listen to your wife only to fail at fully grasping her word and what she is trying to communicate. Usually, my wife is pretty good at noticing if I'm truly paying attention to her words. And if she notices that I'm distracted, she'll graciously say something like this. She'll say, hey, can you listen to me? I've learned the best way to show her that I'm attentive is by repeating the information back to her and asking deeper questions about what she's trying to communicate. Now, this tendency of misunderstanding is also sometimes our downfall when it comes to listening to God. Because of our cultural context or our personal assumptions or presuppositions, we might be tempted to hear God wrongly when reading his word. And this kind of leads us to misinterpret the Bible and the way that we are to live before God. A common misinterpreted verse in the Bible is Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through him or Christ who strengthens me. Many people read this verse and think this means that the world is their oyster and God will bless all their endeavors. However, in context, this verse is written by a man who understands his inability to sustain his own life as he is bound by Roman chains. His words are rather an assurance of God's providence, provision, and sustaining power to endure through whatever lies ahead. But let's be clear. Misunderstanding God is not new under the sun. In fact, if we look back to the very beginning of the Bible, we will see that misunderstanding the intentions of God's word led to distrust and then also the greatest fall in human history. In Genesis 3, the crafty serpent brought into question God's goodness by attacking his word when he said this, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which Eve said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now notice, Eve's answer is distorted of what God really said. If you look back at Genesis 2.17, the Lord said that they could eat of every tree besides one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it seems that although God's command to Adam and Eve was clear and direct, Eve ended up adding and subtracting to it, leading both Eve and then Adam to take the bait of the deceiver. This demonic attack teaches us that if you give the devil an inch, he will take a mile. See, once the serpent knew that he had lured Eve to misunderstanding God and distrusting his goodness, he further distorts the command by saying to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is here in the biblical narrative we can almost put ourselves in Eve's shoes as she wonders and second guesses what God had said and also about his intentions for not eating the forbidden fruit. Her ignorance of the command caused her to pursue something outside of God's will for her and to desire autonomy from God's rule and authority. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the narrative tells us that the Lord pronounced judgment on humanity and the crafty serpent. Yet he also gives the first gospel promise in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Eve, sitting on the sidelines, hears God speaking to the serpent and knows that it will be through her offspring that a son will be born to crush the serpent's head. However, yet again, she misinterprets God's word, thinking that her firstborn son is the promised hope of Genesis 3.15. And so as we turn the pages to Genesis 4.1, it begins by saying this, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. One commentator points out Eve's misconception of God's promise when she pronounced, I have gotten a man. For it's quite unique for a mother who had just given birth to a child then to refer to him as a grown adult. Therefore, her usage here for man instead of child or son is perhaps messianic, believing him to be the promised seed. If that is not enough evidence, the ancient Hebrew Research Center suggests that Cain and Abel are twin brothers whose names are contrasting. Cain's name means to acquire or to possess something, while Abel means quite the opposite, to be empty, vain, or with no substance. Simply put, Cain has purpose, and Abel has no purpose. Take that as a lesson of what not to do when naming your kids. It's like naming one of your sons Barnabas and the other one Judas. What is most notable is when this contrast of brothers and the expectation of their names is shattered at the sacrificial altar. Both brothers bring an offering to the Lord, but only one was regarded worthy. The scriptures tell us in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what went wrong here? Why would Abel's offering be seen as acceptable Why his brother Cain's was denied and found useless? Well, the text doesn't directly tell us, does it? Some scholars suggest that it's because Abel's was a blood sacrifice pointing to the sacrificial system, while Cain's was not. However, their offerings are not surprising to us. Cain was a farmer, and therefore he brought grain, like his father, and Abel was a shepherd, and certainly we can see that grain was also acceptable in the offerings of Leviticus 2. Now, at this point, many of us are just tempted to then just jump ahead to, to read the story through the New Testament lens, which is, which is good. We can do that. And so, as we're, our study tells us, Hebrews 11.4 makes it clear that it was by faith, right? Abel and his offering was accepted and Cain's was not. And it was through him and his faith that he was commended righteous, 
God commending him by accepting his gift. But without this later revelation, is there anything from the text that can give us a fair reading? And so commentator Longman suggests this, that he sees that the phrasing used in the passage actually captures the nuance of the Hebrew when it describes Cain's offering as some of the fruits of the soil. And Abel's sacrifice comes from the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. In a word, Cain offers the ordinary and Abel the best. And of course, the quality of their offering reflects the condition of their heart. Abel is enthusiastic in his worship, while Cain is basically disinterested. Again, the difference between the two offerings was not the type of gift, but the integrity of the giver. God saw the condition of their hearts and found one suitable and one unsuitable. And because of this, Cain's pride and arrogance becomes enraged, and he goes into the field with his brother, and he kills his brother in cold blood. Now, what we must notice is that the sin of Genesis 3 and 4 is rooted in the people's failure to listen to God's word and to understand it rightly. Because Eve failed to understand God's word, Cain actually believed himself to be something that he wasn't. And it led him to thinking that whatever he did would be good and acceptable to God. He had more regard for himself than for the Lord at this point. And when the Lord required a sacrifice, his heart posture was wrong and he didn't give his best, nor did he give it in faith. However, like most of the redemptive story proves, it is not the prideful or the arrogant who are accepted by God. It is the lowly and the humble at heart. Those who by faith give of their best, trusting God's goodness and his commands. It is here in the story that Abel understands God's ways and trusts completely in his word. What is sobering about all of this is we are more like Cain than Abel. We think too highly of ourselves and believe that we can do whatever we want and God will accept us. Our posture before God in worship can be heartless and disinterested. And when it comes to even comparing ourselves to our brothers, we can become jealous and commit murder in our hearts. Yet just as he did with Cain, God offers us mercy. For just as Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, God does not kill Cain but sends him away. Jesus' blood cries out forgiveness. Hebrews 12, 24 says, Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is in Jesus, the true promised seed, we find a better brother, who has crushed the head of the serpent by the work of the cross and will one day completely do away with sin, suffering, and Satan himself. But until that day, we must do our best to rightly handle the word of truth, not allowing the devil to have a foothold in the way we think and understand God, but one that leads us to saving faith. So in closing, I want to give you a few steps to help with interpreting God's word rightly. These come from a helpful textbook called Grasping God's Word, which is in this section, the interpretive journey. The first step is grasping the text in their town. The question we must ask when coming to any passage is this, what did it mean to the original audience? And you can gain a lot from looking to what it meant to the original audience. The historical and literary context of the passage will give us good insight on how we are to read and understand 
the passage. Secondly, the second step is measuring the width of the river to cross. Since we are living in the 21st century and most of the Bible was written thousands of years ago, we must ask what differences are there between the biblical culture and our culture today? Culture, language, and time can hinder us from fully grasping what we are reading. So we must learn how to build a bridge by determining the river we must cross. For example, it's easier for us to read and understand a New Testament epistle than books like Leviticus. So once we have made good connections and cross over the river, we can take our third step, which is crossing the bridge. This step mostly deals with the theological principles reflected in the meaning of the text. We can ask questions like, what does this text tell us about God? Or in the context of Genesis 4, what does this tell us about God and his acceptance of sacrifice or worship? After writing down these theological conclusions, we can then take the fourth step, which is consult the biblical map. We ask questions on how does this principle fit into the rest of the Bible? Again, if we are studying the Old Testament, we can use the New Testament witness of Scripture to help interpret what we're reading. Much like we did in Genesis, we used Hebrews to interpret what made Abel's sacrifice acceptable. For we see the whole Bible what through the vantage point of the gospel and Jesus being the center of redemption. Lastly, after we have walked through these four steps, we can then grasp the text in our own town. This is the application point, asking how does this passage and its principles call us to live today? Scripture is not just about information, but it's about transformation. All theology should affect our practical and daily life. With these five steps in mind, we can learn how to rightly interpret and apply God's word to our lives. Well, this is the conclusion of our time together, and I hope that this episode has been helpful and insightful for you. So until next time, may grace and peace be with you all. Amen. Amen.